to, uh, to have it open. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, grab one from, from the seats around you. Uh, and our Bible reading today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In the church Bibles, it's on page 1165. That's 1165. And the reading is from Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 19. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins." Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Val. So if you've um, got a Bible open, please do keep it open to that page. And let's, uh, let's pray together. Living Lord, we pray that you'd make yourself real to us this morning. These are strong, bold, important words that we've just heard. Paul says that we're wasting our time here if, if you're not raised from the dead. And what's more, if you're not risen from the dead, then what I've got to say this morning is worse than a waste of everyone's time. It's a lie, a fraud, a deception. So, Lord, I beg you to pour out your spirit on us so that as I speak and as, as, as all of us listen, we may know that you are addressing us. Lord, we know that there's a world of difference between saying that we believe you're alive and actually enjoying the sweetness of an intimate relationship with you as our living Lord. And so I pray that today, Easter would become more real to each and every one of us, that it would become the bright, burning reality from which we live our lives. And yet, Lord, I know that not even the, the finest preacher in all the world can make that happen. It is something that only your spirit can do in a heart. And so we pray for your Holy Spirit to come among us, to make resurrection people out of us. Amen. Every year, the Christian charity Open Doors produces a world watch list ranking the car- countries where Christians face the most persecution for their faith. And Open Doors defines persecution as any hostility experienced as a result of one's identification with Christ. This can include hostile attitudes, words, and actions towards Christians. Now, the most obvious kind of persecution uh, is what's known as the smash 
of violence. So, for example, physical or mental attacks, sexual harassment, church buildings or homes being destroyed, being arrested, uh, being imprisoned, uh, even being killed for your faith. But there's also a subtler form of persecution known as the squeeze, the pressure that's exerted upon Christians that makes it very difficult for them to live out their faith. So, for example, Christians being prevented from meeting together or families turning their backs on people for becoming followers of Jesus. And this year, the most difficult place on earth to be a Christian is Afghanistan. And so this is what Open Door says uh, about what it's like to be a Christian in Afghanistan in 2022. It says, even before this year, it was impossible to live openly as a Christian in Afghanistan. Leaving Islam is considered shameful, and Christian converts face dire and violent consequences if their new faith is discovered. Either they have to flee the country, or they will be killed. The Taliban will make sure that Islamic rules and customs are implemented and kept. Christian converts do not have any option but to obey them. If a Christian's new faith is discovered, their family, clan, or tribe has to save its honor by disowning the believer or even killing them. This is widely considered to be a just reaction. Alternatively, since leaving Islam is considered a sign of insanity, A Christian who has converted from Islam may be forcibly sectioned in a psychiatric hospital. Why would anyone in Afghanistan choose to follow Jesus? And yet it's not just in Afghanistan where the cost of following Jesus has been so apparent. Church history is full of stories of men and women who have risked all for Jesus. People like Jackie Pullinger, who set sail from England in 1966 to minister among the brutal triad gangsters of the walled city in Hong Kong. People like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who as Adolf Hitler and the Nazis seduced a nation, was martyred by the Gestapo for his part in the resistance movement to bring down the Third Reich from the inside. People like Elizabeth Elliot, who after her husband Jim was murdered by the Waldani tribe uh, in eastern Ecuador, went to live among the tribe with her children to share the good news of Jesus with them. People like uh, Neng Kuei, converted as part of Hudson Taylor's missionary work in China, for whom simply attending church meetings on a Sunday cost him a full third of his meager weekly wage as a basket maker. I don't have time to tell you all the stories of people like Polycarp and Perpetua and Cory Tenboom and Richard Wormbrand and Brother Andrew and Brother Yun, nor even the thousands upon thousands of our unnamed brothers and sisters who at this very moment, right now, are facing persecution for Christ in countries around the world. But why do I start like that? Because all of these, in their own ways, have understood and experienced what the Apostle Paul says here in verse 19 of our reading. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
Eugene Peterson translates it, if all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot. Why? Because as John Piper says, the the call of Christ is a call to live a life of sacrifice and loss and suffering. A life that would be foolish to live if there were no resurrection from the dead. A little further into the chapter, uh, verses 31, 32, Paul says this. He says, I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus, I Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul spells out the challenges he'd faced as an apostle. Imprisoned several times, flogged several times, exposed to death again and again, given the 40 minus 1 lashes five separate occasions, beaten with rods three times, stoned once, shipwrecked three times, spending a night and a day on the open sea, constantly in danger from rivers, bandits, his fellow Jews, false believers, wherever he went, in town, in country, working his skin to the bone, going hungry, thirsty, naked, cold, and feeling a constant inner burden for all the churches he'd planted." It's not the kind of life you'd choose if this life was all there is. Paul was someone who knew the cost of discipleship to Jesus better than most. And contrary to the perception you'd get from much teaching and evangelism uh, that happens in the church at the moment, there is a cost of following Jesus. But in his letter to the Philippians... Paul reveals that far from considering all those things a liability, he thought he was getting a bargain. He says, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ participating in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Do you see the magnitude of what Paul's saying in verse 19? He's effectively saying, if this life is all there is, I've bet the house on the wrong horse. I wonder how many of us could say the same thing. That the way we're living our lives would make no sense unless God had raised Christ Jesus from the dead. That the way we're living our lives would be crazy unless the same God who raised Jesus from the dead is at work in our lives also. That we've gone all in on Jesus being the living Lord of the universe. And that if he's not, we've lost everything. Am I overreading this? I don't think I am. If the resurrection of Jesus isn't the only possible explanation for the way that we're living our lives as Christians, then Paul seems to think that 
we're not living them right. If the reality of the resurrection doesn't make our lifestyle choices as Christians look noticeably different from our non-Christian neighbors, I think Paul would question whether the resurrection is indeed a reality to us. So let me just try and press home the point that I think Paul's making a little bit more. Ask yourself these questions. What does it cost me to be a Christian? What would I have lost if, in the end, it's proved that my hope in Christ was false? If tomorrow it was shown beyond doubt that Jesus did not rise from the dead, how easy would it be for me to start a new life without him? Our honest answers to these questions, I think, will reveal the extent to which the resurrection of Jesus is the ground of our being, or just kind of a nice peripheral idea. But listen again to Paul's words. Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Useless. Empty, fruitless, pointless. Waste of time. You are wasting your time here this morning if Jesus isn't alive. If, verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile You're still in your sins. Futile. Worthless. Ineffective. No good. Verse 19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're of all people most to be pitied. People should feel sorry for us if Jesus isn't alive. Paul doesn't say, if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, well, I've still lived a good life. He says, if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, my life isn't worth living. The reason Paul says this is because the Christian life, a life of apprenticeship to Jesus, is a life of sacrifice and self-denial. There is a cost to following Jesus. And Jesus is quite upfront about it. He says quite clearly, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. He also says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus' words, not mine. And so, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I uh, mentioned earlier, summed it up well when he said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Similarly, the great Protestant reformer, John Calvin, characterized the entire spiritual journey as one of self-denial. Sacrifice and self-denial aren't secondary to Jesus. They're at the heart of his way of life. And therefore, they're at the heart of what it means to learn his way of life, which is what we mean by the term discipleship. According to Jesus, the way up is down. The way to become rich is to give away what you've got. The way to true power is through service. 
The way to save your life is to throw it away for his sake and the sake of the kingdom. The way that, you, uh, the way that you're strong is to glory in your weakness. The way that you pay back your enemies is by blessing them. The way that you fight is to be killed rather than be killed, rather than kill. The way to glory is the way of suffering. The way of life and peace is the way of the cross. And so to say that the way of Jesus is, uh, is countercultural is somewhat of an understatement. Jesus is the king of an upside-down kingdom. But it's only Easter that proves that this upside-down kingdom is actually the right way up. Now, lots of people who, who don't like to imagine the possibility of Jesus as Lord and Savior like to talk about Jesus instead as a, a great moral teacher. They don't want to be Christians, but they, they think that Christian values might be a, a good thing to live by. Well, the fact is that if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then the way he lived his life and the, the lifestyle he advocated was proven to be a complete failure. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then weakness most certainly is not the way forward. <laughs> if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then he isn't the king, and his so-called kingdom is nothing more than another utopian dream. Any form of Christianity that, that doesn't hinge on the death and resurrection of Jesus isn't Christianity at all. It's a poor substitute. Just a new form of moralism dressed up in Christian clothes. Take away the resurrection and the good news becomes advice from a discredited life coach. And so this is what Paul means when he says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're of all people most to be pitied. If Jesus' way of life ended at the cross, then he might have had noble aims, noble objectives, but ultimately, it ended in failure. And it's the very costliness of Jesus' way of life that is its foolishness if he was not raised from the dead. But on the other hand, if Jesus really was raised from the dead, then his way of life was anything but foolish. Rather, he's revealed to us that the cross wasn't a defeat, but a victory. He's revealed to us the, the deep magic on which the world is built. He's revealed to us the grain of the universe. And we would be most pitied if having revealed to us the grain of the universe, we decided to go, go against the grain in the way that we live our lives. And that's what the risen Christ told Paul when he knocked him off his donkey on the way to Damascus. It's hard to kick against the goats. Now, the problem is that many people in our churches, I think up and down the country, and in the West especially, have fallen for the lie that we can be Christians without being disciples. We've fallen for the lie that there are the mass ranks of ordinary professing Christians, and then there are the real keen beans. And if you're a real keen bean, then you might be a minister or a missionary or something like that. And they're basically you know, the, the spiritual SAS. 
And I have to say that I think the Church of England is particularly bad in this area. Um, and I can only imagine Jesus shaking his head in despair at some of the things uh, that, that you know, we're officially defining a regular worshipper as someone who attends once a month. Uh, I can't imagine what Jesus would say about that. Now, in 1939, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I mentioned earlier, gave the world his masterful book, uh, The Cost of Discipleship. And in it, he exposed the flaw of an easy Christianity. Cheap grace, he called it. And this was written against the backdrop of a church that had horribly compromised itself with the Nazis. And he explained, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jacks wares. The preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And he points out that we can't be disciples of Christ without forfeiting many of the things normally sought out in human life. And that one who pays little in the world's coinage to bear his name has good reason to wonder whether or not he or she stands with God. But in opposition to this, Bonhoeffer taught that fought for costly grace, which he described as the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all he has. He explained such grace is costly because it calls us to follow And it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs a man his life. And it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it's costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it's grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Grace is costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and follow him. It's grace because Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Only someone who has staked their life on following Jesus by learning to walk his way of self-denial, can truly understand why the resurrection is good news. If the way of Jesus were health and wealth and prosperity, well, we wouldn't have lost much if Jesus wasn't risen from the dead. It's the very nature of Christ's call to to self-denial that makes Easter so important. Self-denial sounds foreign to our ears in a culture where everything is about self-fulfillment. The idea of saying no to our desires in order to say yes to Jesus sounds crazy. But Jesus says that the way of self-denial is in fact the ultimate way of self-fulfillment. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it, he says. Again, John Piper's right. He says Christianity is not a life one would embrace as abundant and satisfying. 
without the hope of fellowship with Christ in the resurrection. But if Christ has been raised from the dead, then that upside-down kingdom is shown to be the right way up. If Christ has been raised from the dead, then his way of life, which seems so strange in the world's eyes, loving your enemies, pouring yourself out in service to others, being injured rather than injuring, all of that has been vindicated by God. If Christ has been raised from the dead, then we either get with his program or we stay horribly out of tune with the ultimate reality of the universe. And so the truth is that while the cost of following Jesus is high, the cost of not following Jesus is higher still. Dallas Willard writes, No one goes sadly, reluctantly into discipleship with Jesus. No one goes in bemoaning the cost. You know, what I quoted earlier from Paul's letter to the Philippians where he describes Jesus as the treasure for which he considers everything else as garbage. The Greek word literally is skubalon, which means excrement. I consider everything else excrement for the sake of knowing Jesus. Paul doesn't think he's got a bad deal from hitching his wagon to Jesus. It would only be a bad deal. Even with all of the things that he's suffered and endures as a disciple, as an apostle, it would only be a bad deal if Jesus wasn't risen, if there was no resurrection. So again, Dallas Willard explains that non-discipleship costs abiding peace, a life penetrated throughout by love, faith that sees everything in the light of God's overriding governance for our good, hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances, power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. In short, it costs exactly that abundance of life Jesus came to bring. But the resurrection shows that this life isn't the only factor in the equation. The resurrection shows us that we're meant for eternal life in God's kingdom. And discipleship is about learning to live the life of the kingdom here and now so that we might do so forever in the world to come. And so where the balance might seem heavy in terms of the costs and some of the challenges of following Jesus, Easter completely tips the balance. Would your life be worth living, I wonder, if Jesus wasn't risen from the dead? our answer is yes and I think Paul gives us reason to ask whether we're actually following Jesus and learn his way of life or just admiring him from a distance like a sports chair an armchair sports fan those who have invested little in the resurrection of Jesus will receive little return on their investment and some of you might be thinking, well, I can understand how that might, respond, you know, how that might relate to, to people who have kind of given their whole lives um, to, 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 to serve the church, either as, you know, as a missionary or something. But what about ordinary Christians like us, like me? Well, 
What could it mean for, 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 for everyone to stake their life on Jesus? I think the answer is by denying self and choosing the way of Jesus in every situation of our life. By choosing worship over chasing the idols of the world. By choosing sacrifice over privilege. By choosing generosity over selfishness. A life ruled by King Jesus rather than a life in which we seek to be the rulers of our own little mini-kingdoms. And this might seem really heavy. You know, that discipleship to Jesus is spelled death to self. It might sound like a really bad, heavy, depressing business, but it's really not at all. It's trading up our beat-up old Skoda for a Bugatti Veyron. It's trading a, a McDonald's Happy Meal for a seven-course meal at Raymond Blanc's Le Manoir Quatre Saisons. It's trading a, a holiday weekend in Hartlepool. No offense to Hartlepool. For a month by the beach in Hawaii. That's what Paul understood. That's what he's trying to communicate here to the Christians in Corinth and to us too. And so an ordinary Christian, I don't like that language because I don't think there is such a thing, but says no to self and yes to Jesus in hundreds of ways every day. When we refuse to engage in gossip behind other people's backs at work or yes, even at church. When we work hard for the intimacy and trust of a lifelong marriage instead of giving up and chasing the thrill of a new relationship. When we tell the truth, even when it costs us and others disapprove. About 150 years ago, there was a great revival in Wales. It resulted in many missionaries going out to share the good news of Jesus with people including in places like northeast India. And one Welsh missionary succeeded uh, in, in converting a man, his wife, and his two children. And this man's faith proved to be contagious, and many villagers began to accept Christianity. And the village chief was so angry, he summoned all the villagers and called the family who had first converted to renounce their faith or face execution. And filled with the Holy Spirit, the man sang a song which has become famous through the years and which we'll hear again shortly. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Enraged, the chief ordered that the man's whole family be killed before his eyes, starting with his two children. The chief then gave him one more chance. And the man sang back, the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back, no turning back. And the man was shot dead, like the rest of his family. But with their deaths, a miracle took place. And the chief who had ordered the killings, was moved by the man's faith. He wondered, why should this man, his wife and two children, die for a man who lived in a faraway land on another continent some 2,000 years ago? 
There must be some supernatural power behind the family, and I too want that supernatural power. So in a spontaneous confession of faith, he publicly declared, I too belong to Jesus Christ. And when the crowd heard this from the mouth of their chief, the whole village accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. Now that man and his family, like the Apostle Paul, knew the power of Christ's resurrection. He knew that to know Christ, to know him even in suffering, because he's risen, is better than all the riches of the world. Jesus is risen, or else we're wasting our time. So I wonder, do you know the power of the resurrection in your life? Is your life a living mystery that points to the infinite beauty of a crucified and risen king of the universe? Would people be able to look at us from outside as a church and say, This could only make sense if Jesus were alive. Let's pray. Lord, we want to know you. And so thank you for the faith of our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church who show us just how precious you are through their willingness to suffer for your sake. Lord, would you give us eyes to see just how valuable you are that even in the face of what seems to us such unbearable costs, that you are, to, to know you is a bargain. That nothing that we could give would ever be too little for what you give to us. So we pray that you would empower us to live our lives in such a way that they only make sense if you are risen from the dead. Amen. So as a way of responding, we're going to have that, um, that, that song now. If you, if you know it, please do join in. If you don't know it, 